Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Jesus Is. We will be looking at the seven I am statements that Jesus made. Here's Pastor Nick. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, Please open with me in your Bibles to Gospel of John chapter 8. Last Sunday, we started a new series called Jesus Is, in which we're looking at the seven I am statements that Jesus made that are recorded for us in the Gospel of John. So today we'll be continuing that in John chapter 8. Before we pray and get into our study, just a few words about Ukraine and what we were doing over there. Um, I just want to say thank you for all of your generosity and giving to our Ukraine Relief Fund. Pastor Mike and I were over there. I just got back this week. Um, Mike's getting back next week. And um, by God's grace, we were able to actually accomplish quite a lot. Um, We've already distributed over um, $30,000 worth of help to people who are doing really important work on the ground in both Hungary and in Ukraine itself. And there's so much more to be done. Uh, If you're curious about some of the things that we did, we recorded a video. It came out on Wednesday. It's on our YouTube channel. Make sure to check that out. There were some things that we did that we weren't really able to talk about in that video because they were still in process and kind of needed to be still kept on the down low. But now we are at a place where we can talk about them. So hopefully in the near future, uh, we might have like an in-person thing where we're able to talk more about what we're doing, some ongoing needs. Just so you know, there are, I mean, so many needs and also so many opportunities. And it's it's great that we have the money that we've had and we've been able to funnel it and we're going to keep doing that. If it's still on your heart to give, uh, our Ukraine Relief Fund is still available and open and we're looking uh, to continue just giving and supporting those who are doing God's work in um Ukraine and also in the surrounding countries, but be praying for the situation because it's actually getting more dire right now. So yeah, be praying for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, particularly the Christians and those seeking to reach out in love during this time. Uh, Well, with that, please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we open God's word. Lord, thank you that you are the light of this world. Lord, we know that this world is full of darkness. Lord, we know that there is darkness that dwells not just outside of these walls in the world, but even, Lord, within our very hearts. And we ask that the light of your glory would shine in the dark places of this world, that it would shine in the dark places of our heart. Lord, that the darkness would be dispelled as your light takes root. And Lord, we pray that you would help us by enlightening the eyes of our hearts as we study your word today. Help us to understand and help us to respond appropriately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it was a Friday night, and it was in the middle of winter. I was meeting a friend at a pizza place before we uh, headed out on our adventure. And so when we met, it was already dark outside, but that didn't really matter because where we were going, it was going to be dark no matter what time of day it was. So we finished our pizza, and we drove up Highway 6 past Golden uh, towards Idaho Springs up through a Clear Creek Canyon, and we pulled over at kind of an unmarked space, just a wide spot in the road. We pulled over, parked the car. My friend told me, don't bring your phone because it's not going to work where we're going anyway. And plus, you want to have your clothes be as tight as possible because some of the places we're going to have to squeeze into are pretty small. And he said, you know, um, 
Also, because it's winter, uh, you can just, even though it's winter, you can leave your coat in the car because where we're going, the temperature is always the same. And so we started out from the car. We climbed up the side of this hill in the dark with following no, there was no path that we were following, just kind of scrambling up the side of this mountain. And after a few minutes of climbing, we reached the place that we had been looking for, which was an opening in the mountain. It was a cave. And my friend asked me, he said, did you bring your headlamp? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, did you bring extra batteries? And I said, I did. And he said, good because if our headlamps go out, we're dead. And he wasn't joking, actually. You know that um, in this cave, sometimes we would be squeezing into tight places. But other times, we would be in big open places where there were crevasses, where if you fall down these things, who knows if you are going to get out or how you'll ever get out. Sometimes we would come to places where it forks, right? And so you can go left or right. And if you take the wrong turn, who knows what happens to you, right? And so without light, you would be dead, for real. Light, like food and water, is necessary for life. If the sun were to stop shining, life on earth would cease within a short amount of time. And this is why throughout human history, light and darkness have been powerful metaphors in every human culture. Right? Light has regularly been associated with goodness and life, whereas darkness is associated with evil and death. And if you think about it, it's even worked our way into our vernacular, the way that we talk, right? To know something or to understand something we say is to be enlightened, whereas to not know something or not understand something, we would say that you are in the dark. And that makes a lot of sense because if you think about what light does, what does it do? Well, light enables you to see things for how they really are, to see things for how they really are. On the other hand, darkness hides or obscures our vision. It prevents us from seeing things that are actually there, even though they are there. If you've ever tried to navigate your way through a dark room, maybe you've bumped into things, you trip over things. The reason is because there are things that are there, whether you can see them or not. And it's only when you turn on the lights, right, that you can begin to see things for how they really are. You begin to understand and navigate your setting and your surroundings when the light comes in. So in the Bible, these metaphors of light and darkness are used. And in the Bible, God takes this metaphor and takes it even one giant step further where he says that actually God is light and in him there is no darkness whatsoever. God is the one who in the book of Genesis spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light. God's people are called to live as children of the light and to shine like stars in the midst of the corruption of this world. Sin and Satan, on the other hand, we're told in the Bible, are of the darkness, right? Sinful actions are called deeds of darkness. And Jesus referred to hell as outer darkness. Jesus said that on our own, we are lost in darkness. But what happens is when God intervenes in someone's life, when God saves a person, he says that is when God calls you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And the Bible tells us that in heaven, there will actually be no night. God will be our light and he will illuminate and shine forever. It's funny, I was talking to Pastor Mike last week. We were so exhausted in Hungary and, and into Ukraine, you know. We are so exhausted. And I was like, I can't believe this. I had to meet this guy at 2.30 in the morning to buy a van at a gas station, right? And I was like, Mike, I can't believe this. I got to preach in the morning and then I got to preach in the afternoon right after this. And he said, don't worry about it. And we can sleep when we're in heaven. But I'm like, I don't think we can, bro, because it says there's 
no night. Like, it's just going to be bright, like, all the time, right? God will be our light. Well, listen, back in that cave, of course, we wanted to see how dark it really was. And so at one point there in the heart of the mountain, we turned off our headlamps, and it was pure pitch darkness. There's actually a word for it. They call it cave darkness. It's a total absence of light, right? You can't see your hand in front of your face. You can actually feel the darkness. And that's the thing about darkness, right? What is it? It's the absence of light. Light, in other words, is an outside force. Without the intervention of this outside force of light, our default setting, our default scenario is darkness, the only way to break the darkness is by introducing light into that space. But once you do introduce light, wherever the light goes, darkness is always dispelled. Light, in other words, is always more powerful than darkness. If they were to fight and square off, mano y mano, darkness versus light, light will always win because wherever light shines, darkness is dispelled. It can't compete. And the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that into the darkness of this world, a light has come, and that light has a name. His name is Jesus. He is God come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The title of today's message is, Jesus is the light of the world. And what we're going to see in our passage today, every week I give you a sentence that serves as our outline and our summary. And I'd love it if you'd write it down, have it in your notes, take this thought with you as you go. Here it is for today. Jesus is the light of the world who came so that rather than dying in our sins, we might have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world who came so that, we might, so that rather than dying in our sins, we might have the light of life. So we'll take that sentence and we'll look at each part of it as we study this passage. So first of all, Jesus is the light of the world. In John chapter 8, verse 12, here's what we read. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the second of seven statements Jesus makes in the Gospel of John, which begin with the words, I am, the I am statements. This is number two. Now that number seven is really important in John's Gospel. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what we call the synoptic Gospels. Now what a synoptic Gospel means, it means a, a general view of the whole. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they kind of approach Jesus' life like a biographer would, right? Trying to give you a general overview of Jesus' life, Jesus' ministry, and Jesus' teaching. So you can kind of get the big picture of it. But John's gospel is different. And part of the reason for that is because John's gospel was the last of the four gospels to be written. And that's because John was the last of Jesus' 12 disciples who died. He lived the longest. And so for the early Christians, the apostle John was an important link for them back to Jesus. Because as he lived and as he got older, he was the last one who was alive, who still walked with Jesus, heard him speak, was there, saw the miracles. And so as John got older, probably by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, probably by the prompting of other people, they said, John, we need you to write down some of those things that you remember Jesus said and Jesus did that didn't make it into the other gospels. And so John, he approaches his gospel in a different way than the other gospel writers. Rather than giving us a general overview of Jesus' life and ministry, instead, John focuses on some key moments. Sometimes he takes multiple chapters just to talk about something that happened in the course of one day or one evening. 
right? So John focuses in on these events that took place, key moments in Jesus' life that give us insight into who Jesus was. And at the end of the book, John tells us what his logic is and what's his heart's motivation behind doing this. He says, look, there are many other things that Jesus said and did in the presence of his disciples, but I've chosen to tell you these things so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Rather than following a strict chronology of Jesus' life, John's gospel is instead structured around seven signs that Jesus performed and seven I am statements that Jesus made. Right? So seven signs and seven statements. And together, these seven signs and seven statements are given to us, shown to us, to reveal who Jesus is in such a way that if you approach it with an open heart and an open mind, you would be compelled to believe in him. Now this phrase, I am, that John tells us Jesus actually used repeatedly throughout his ministry, it's a particularly loaded phrase when it comes to the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. And I'll explain why that is in just a moment. But first, let's look at this statement and what it means. In order to understand what Jesus is saying and what it means when he says, I am the light of the world, you need to understand the setting in which this took place. And here's the setting. This took place during the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, did you know that John's gospel from chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9, three chapters, they all talk about events which took place over the course of an eight-day festival. In fact, John 7, starting in verse 37 to the end of, verse, the end of chapter 9, that section actually covers events that all took place on one single day the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which, by the way, is also called, in some of your Bibles, the Feast of Booths. It's the same thing. It was, a, it was basically a really big party that would take place every year in either September or October. The date changed, of course, because they followed a lunar calendar, a moon-based calendar. We follow a solar calendar. And so it would take place at the same time on their calendar every year, but for us that falls sometimes in September, sometimes in October. And the instructions for this festival were given in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. And here's how it worked. During this festival, everybody who could was encouraged to come up to Jerusalem. But even if you couldn't go to Jerusalem, everybody in Israel for this eight days, the Feast of Tabernacles, was told to move out of their houses, right? Like you live in a house, you're going to move into a tent, right? Imagine if you moved out of your house and moved into a, a tent in your backyard. Well, that's what these people would do. Sometimes they build the, this kind of makeshift lodging on top of the roof of their house. They have flat roofed houses there. Sometimes it would be out in the courtyard of their place or in, in maybe a, a desolate place, a wide open place, but they would move out of their houses and for eight days they would live in tents. And the purpose of doing this was to remember how God had set them free from slavery in Egypt. And as the people of Israel, right, after God had set them free from slavery, they had lived in tents for 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness. Now they did this, the reason they would try and do this, remember this every year, go live in tents for eight days, was on the one hand a reminder 
of the fact that their ancestors had done this. But more importantly, it was a reminder of God's faithfulness to their people in the past. Because as the people of Israel were in the wilderness over the course of those 40 years, God miraculously provided for them and miraculously protected them. And one of the main ways that God miraculously provided for them over the course of those 40 years was by providing them with water to drink. You can't go very long without having water to drink. And just imagine how scary it would have been to be walking through the desert with your children, with elderly people, and not knowing where or when or how you would get your next drink of water. Just imagine the little children complaining, right? Not understanding the situation and just complaining, I'm thirsty, when are we going to have a drink of water? The people of Israel... Every time they set out from their camp to go to a new place, they had to fully entrust themselves to God, that God was going to lead them to a place where they would have a source of water to drink. And he did for 40 years, miraculously. It was amazing. But here's the thing. How did God lead them through the wilderness? It tells us in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers that God led them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Up until a couple of years ago, uh, my wife and I, we used to drive back and forth to Southern California, where she's from. We used to drive back and forth a lot. Uh, now we figured out that we can fly. I don't know why we didn't do that before. It's a lot faster, uh, but uh, I guess more expensive. So we used to drive a lot, and we had this car. It's a 94 Acura Integra. I liked the car a lot, but it didn't have air conditioning, right? So, so whenever we would drive through the desert, especially in the summer, we'd always time our trip so that we'd go through the desert during the night, when the temperature wouldn't be as high. So for the people of Israel, understand, as they're wandering in the desert over the course of these 40 years, first of all, if you've ever been in the desert, you know that if you see a cloud in the sky, it's sometimes like it's a big deal, right? There's not a lot of clouds in the sky in the desert. So you see a cloud in the sky, it's like, whoa, look, a cloud in the sky. It, I don't know if it would have given them shade or if it would have just been a marker for them to pursue and follow. But during the night when they would travel to stay out of the heat, God provided them with this fire, this light in the darkness, which would lead them where they needed to go. Now think about this. If they followed the light, God would lead them to the life-giving water, the life-giving food. Ultimately, he would lead them to the promised land. But if they didn't follow that light, if they decided instead to go a different course, to go their own way, then surely they would have perished in the wilderness. So over the course of this festival, this eight-day festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, the people would remember God's faithfulness to them in these ways by doing a couple of ritualistic acts, which kind of reminded them of God's faithfulness, helped them celebrate it. The first of these ritual acts was that every day during the feast or during the festival, a priest would bring like a golden pitcher, kind of like a golden bucket. And he would go and he would get water from the stream of Siloam, which flows underneath the Temple Mount. He would go and get water from that stream and he would bring it out to the courtyard of the temple where the people were gathered. And in a big show, he would pour that water out on the dry ground as a way of reminding the people that God always provided for them water to drink in the wilderness. But there was another thing they would also do. 
on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, they would light four large candelabras. You can kind of think of this like the Olympic flame, right? How on the Olympic opening ceremony, you light the Olympic flame and it burns over the course of the entire Olympics and then at the end they put it out. Well, this was similar. They would light these four very large candelabras, which were located in part of the temple courtyard called the treasury. Now, that's kind of important, so remember that for a little bit later on. So they would light these large candelabras, and Jewish writers tell us, traditions tell us, that these lights were so bright, so large, that as people were gathered there, camping in their tents throughout the city, at night you could see the light of these flames of these candelabras that were burning in the courtyard of the temple. Now, with those things in mind, I want you to look at what Jesus did at the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's go back to chapter 7, starting in verse 37, where we read about what happened on the last day, the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says this, that when the time came for the ritual of pouring out the water in remembrance of how God provided for them in the wilderness, Jesus stood up and he declared, he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You know what the water was for Israel in the wilderness? That is what I have come to be for the souls of men and women today, Jesus said. Now the other thing that would happen on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles is like at the Olympic Games, right? They would extinguish those flames of the giant candelabras that had been burning for the entirety of the festival. And they had been burning, where were they located? Again, in the part of the temple courtyard called the treasury. Now at this point, we know on this day, as these lights are being extinguished, Jesus stood up and he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And look where it says that that took place in verse 20. This took place in the treasury as he spoke in the temple. You see, that tells us a lot. It tells us that Jesus is standing in front of these candelabras that represent how God led them with a light in the darkness through the wilderness. And he's saying, I am the light that God has sent into the darkness to lead you through the wilderness of this life. You see, with each of these symbols, the water, the light, Jesus claimed that what had happened in Israel's history, they weren't only acts of miraculous grace, they were also things which foreshadowed who he would be and what he would do when he came. They were things that pointed to him. You see, what those things had done for Israel back in the day, the water and the light, on a physical level, Jesus had come to do those things now for men and women today on a spiritual level. And that brings us to the second part of our sentence. Jesus is the light of the world who came so that rather than dying in our sins, so that rather than dying in our sins. When Jesus made this statement that he is the light of the world, his opponents, the Pharisees, they understood exactly what he was saying. He was claiming to be the Messiah. And that's why they immediately said in verse 13, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. You see, in the law of Moses, according to the Jewish law, the law of Moses, in order for a claim to be accepted legally, it had to be substantiated by 
two parties, two witnesses. So the Pharisees are seeking, in other words, to discredit Jesus on this legal basis. Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. Throughout the Old Testament, God had promised through the prophets that one day he was going to send a person. And that person would be the Savior, not only of the Jewish people, but of the entire world. In the book of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah predicted that one day to the people who live in a land of deep darkness, that's you and me, right? We live in a dark world. He said to people who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. And that light, he tells us, is a person, the Messiah. And so when Jesus says that he is the light of the world, he is on the one hand referring back to the pillar of fire that, through which God led his people through the wilderness, but he's also referring to Isaiah, Isaiah's promise and prophecy that the Messiah would come. And Jesus is saying, I am that light whom Isaiah promised. And the Pharisees responded by saying, but how can we know that you are that light? right? Are we just supposed to take your word for it, right? That's not good enough according to our law. We can't just take your word for it. It has to be substantiated by two witnesses. Verse 14, Jesus responded and said, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. Verse 17, in your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the father who sent me bears witness about me. So Jesus' response is, you know what? Actually, there are two people who bear witness about me, myself and the father who sent me. Now, that was true. If you think about it, throughout the Gospels, there were multiple times when God the Father bore witness about Jesus that he was the Messiah who was promised to come. For example, when Jesus was born, there was an angelic announcement. Do you remember the shepherds in the field? The angels show up and they say, hey, you know, the Messiah has been born and his name is Jesus. Well, here's another one. When Jesus was baptized, do you remember that a voice was heard speaking from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Furthermore, there was the testimony of the scriptures, the prophecies about the Messiah that Jesus had fulfilled. So in other words, you don't just have to take Jesus's word for it, that he's the Messiah. God the Father bore witness to that fact. The scriptures bear witness to that fact in multiple ways. But listen to what the Pharisees then say in response. Verse 19, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Now listen, this was not a sincere question. They weren't really curious. Oh, hey, Jesus, where's your dad at right now? No, no, no. This was meant as an insult they're, they're trying to take a cheap shot at Jesus, a low blow beneath the belt, if you will. The Bible tells us that Jesus was conceived in a miraculous way, and he was born of a virgin birth. But you won't be surprised if I tell you that not everybody believed that story back then, right? They were like, yeah, sure, whatever. Right? The Bible tells us this thing, and Jesus, of course, would make this claim, but not everybody believed it. And so what the Pharisees are doing is they're alluding to the rumors that were circulating about Jesus, that he was actually born uh, outside of wedlock, that he was an illegitimate child. 
In other words, it's a low blow. It's a cheap shot that they're taking at Jesus. But look at how he responds at the end of verse 19. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. In other words, Jesus is saying, you know what? You guys don't know the first thing about me, and you don't know the first thing about God, because even if you just knew your own scriptures, you would know that it says the Messiah will be born of a virgin. So verse 21, so he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now remember, this was a public disputation, right? This is literally Jesus and some Pharisees like shouting back and forth at each other in front of a crowd of thousands of people. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees, I came from heaven, I'm going back to heaven, and you guys, when you die, you're not going to heaven, you're going to die in your sins. And again, the Pharisees, what do they do? They reply with an insult. Says the Jews said, so will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? You see, in the Jewish thinking of that time, they believed that if a person committed suicide, they would go straight to hell automatically. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Now, keep in mind, that, that is not something that the Bible actually teaches. There are religious traditions that teach that, but it's not in the Bible. Now, the reason they're saying this, and, and I could go into more detail about that, but let's just focus here for now. The reason they're saying this is because they are once again mocking and insulting Jesus. In other words, Jesus said, you know, when, when you die, you will go to the opposite place that I will go to. And they said, well, we're definitely going to heaven, so I guess that means you're going to hell. What are you going to do, Jesus? Kill yourself? And he said to them, verse 23, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Here's the crux of the issue. Apart from Jesus and the salvation that he brings, you will die in your sins. The opposite of having the light of life is dying in darkness. Hell in the Bible is called outer darkness. Just like the pillar of fire in the wilderness, if people followed that light, they would live. But if they didn't, or if they went out on their own way, they would surely perish. In the same way Jesus is saying here, there are two potential destinies for every single person. The first of these potential destinies is the natural destiny left to yourself without the intervention of a savior on your behalf, on your own, every single one of us will die in our sins. What this tells us is that our biggest problem and the thing which we most desperately need to be saved from is our sins and the consequences of our sins. Psalm 51 tells us that all people are born in sin. To sin means to miss the mark. It means to fall short. You know, we often say, hey, well, nobody's perfect, right? In other words, what are we doing? We're acknowledging the fact that we know that we are not perfect, right? We've all experienced it. We've all felt it. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, you have made mistakes. You have messed up. You have done things which you wish you hadn't done, that you know you shouldn't have done. You've, in some cases, not done things that you know you should have done. You see, the problem is, we, we all know that nobody's perfect, that none of us are perfect. But the situation is actually more serious, you see, because the Bible tells us that the soul that sins, it says in Ezekiel 18, 
The soul that sins shall surely die. All of us have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. But the death being referred to here isn't just the organic death of our physical bodies. It's something more than that. It's something deeper, more pervasive than that. It is eternal darkness that will be experienced forever. So what can we do? Well, it's actually an even bigger problem because there's actually nothing you can do to take back the bad things you've done. Have you ever wished that? I know I have, right? A wish that, man, I did that and I wish I could take it back, but it's out there and I can't undo it. See, that's the problem. There's nothing you can do to erase your sins, to clean that record, right, of things that you've done wrong, to, to cleanse yourself or get rid of your sins, to undo the wrong things you've done. So if that's true, then what hope is there for any of us to be saved? And that brings us to the final point of our message, which is this. Jesus is the light of the world who came so that rather than dying in our sins, we might have the light of life. See, in verse 24, Jesus explained that unless a person believes in him, they will die in their sins. So then that begs the question, what happens if a person does believe in him? Well, Jesus tells us the answer in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. You see, the other potential destiny, other than our natural destiny, which is to die in darkness, the other potential destiny is to have the light of life. And the way to get that destiny is by believing in, following in, and doing the things that Jesus said. So to this, the Pharisees respond by saying in verse 25, who are you? Now, they're not actually asking, like, what is your mother's maiden name? Like, what is your social security number? No, what they're saying is, who do you think you are? Like, who do you think you are, man, going around saying that you can forgive sins? Who do you think you are saying that everybody's eternal destiny hinges on whether or not they believe in you? And Jesus replies, verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Jesus is saying, you will see. And the proof that I really am the Messiah who was to come will be this. You will lift me up off the ground onto a cross, and this is how I will accomplish my mission of saving people from dying in their sins and bringing them into the light of life. Then the discussion goes on, and Jesus tells them, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. In other words, again, Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I'm the one who even your father Abraham hoped in and looked for. And he, if he was here right now, he would rejoice to see this day. And so if you really respect Abraham, then you should embrace me because that's what Abraham would do. And they say to him, what are you talking about? Verse 57, you're not even 50 years old yet. How can you say that you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And at that moment, they picked up rocks to throw at him, to stone him and kill him, but he got away. Now, why did they want to kill Jesus for saying that? Was it because they were the grammar police? And they said, I'm sorry, Jesus, but this is actually incorrect. You're supposed to say, before Abraham was, I was. That would be proper grammar, but Jesus, you committed the sin of bad grammar by saying, before Abraham was, I am. You see, Jesus' sentence, it actually doesn't make sense grammatically, but it makes perfect sense theologically. 
Because many years before this, when the people of Israel were still in slavery in Egypt, God spoke to a man named Moses. And God told Moses to go to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and demand that he let the people of Israel go free. And Moses asked, who shall I say sent me? Because he knew if he goes to Pharaoh and he says, God sent me, Pharaoh's first question is going to be, well, which God? Because lots of people worship lots of different gods. And so Moses said to God, I can't just tell him God sent me. I need to know your name. Tell me your name so I can tell him who sent me. And God told Moses, okay, I am who I am. Tell Pharaoh that I am sent you. You know that phrase, I am who I am? In Hebrew, it sounds like this. Haya, haya. Do you hear in there the word Yah, from which we get the word Yahweh? You see, Yahweh, the name of God, it derives from the Hebrew word for to be. So when God says, I am that I am, when he says, this is who I am, I am, right? What he's saying is, I am the God who is, the God who always has been, the God who always will be. I am the God who is above everything. I don't depend on anything. Rather, I am the source from which life and everything else has come. And by saying I am over and over, as Jesus did, before Abraham was, I am, you must believe that I am, I am the light of the world. You ought to understand, Jesus was not, just claiming to be the promised Messiah. He was claiming to be that, but he was also saying that he was God come to earth to save us from our sins and bring us into the light of life. This is why Jesus could say that to know him is to know the Father because Jesus is God just as the Father is God. And the reason the Pharisees picked up stones at this point to kill him is because stoning was the punishment for blasphemy. They understood what Jesus was saying, that he is God. And on this occasion, they were unsuccessful in putting Jesus to death. But a short time after this, they did succeed. Jesus was captured. He was beaten he was humiliated, and he was nailed to a Roman cross, lifted up in the air, and he suffered and ultimately died. Do you remember what I said earlier? That without the light of the sun, there would be no life here on earth. In the same way, Jesus is the light of the world, and apart from him, there would only be darkness and death. And do you remember what light does? Not only does it give life, but do you remember what we said? It enables you to see things for how they actually are. That's what light does. That's what happens when you begin to follow Jesus. Following him enables you to see everything else clearly for how it actually is. It enables you to see yourself clearly. It enables you to see the world and everything in it clearly in the light of who he is, in the light of what he says. You see, the, Jesus in the Bible is referred to as the living word of God, the word of God incarnate with flesh on, right? But God has also given us his written word, which is, the Bible says, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. To follow Jesus, the living word of God, means to walk according to the written word of God that we have in the scriptures. In his word, God has made clear to us his will, right? The way that we should walk in, the things we should pursue, the things we should avoid. He makes clear to us good and evil, wisdom and folly. But here's what's even more amazing. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ.
So when you believe in Jesus, God not only gives you the light of eternal life, but he shines his light into your heart here and now. And by doing so, he both transforms you and he empowers you. He transforms your heart and mind as that light floods in to the dark places and enlightens you and brings his light into your life. But you know what else? That light also empowers you. It gives you the ability and the desire to do what is right and pleasing in God's eyes. You see, whereas here Jesus claimed that he is the light of the world, there was another time when Jesus spoke to his disciples and he said to them, you are the light of the world. So what is it? Is Jesus the light of the world, or are we called to be the light of the world? Well, obviously the answer is both, but there's a difference between the two. It's similar to the difference between the sun and the moon. Both the sun and the moon are lights in the sky. See, but the thing about the moon is that it has no light of its own. All the moon does is it reflects the light of the sun. And you see, that's how it is with us. You and I, we don't have any light of our own to shine to this world. The best we can give is to reflect the light of Jesus into the world. And so as God shines his light into our hearts, we want to be like the moon. We want to reflect his light to the world. And what does it mean to reflect his light to the world? It means that as we follow Jesus, through our actions, we seek to show people what he's like. We want to reflect the light of his love to this world that needs it right? To forgive as we've been forgiven, to serve as we have been served by him. We bring the light of his truth into the dark situations and we call people to know and trust him so that rather than dying in their sins, they can have the light of life. You see, even though the Pharisees might have been resisting Jesus and rejecting what he said, it says in verse 30 that as he was saying these things, many people believed in him. And I want to ask you today, do you believe in him? To believe in Jesus doesn't simply mean to believe that he was a real person or that he did the things the Bible says he did. Because think about it, the, the Pharisees, they saw him, that he was a real person. They saw the things that he did with their own eyes, and yet they didn't believe in him. So to believe in Jesus means something more than just believing these historical things. It means to trust in him, to cling to him, to rely on him for your salvation. It means to trust in him that he accomplished for you what you could not accomplish for yourself. On the cross, Jesus died for your sins so that you wouldn't have to die in your sins. You see, on the cross, Jesus experienced the darkness of death on your behalf, in your place, so that you could have the light of life as his gift to you. But I'll tell you this one last thing. The light of life that he gives it isn't only something that you will need someday in order to have eternal life. It's also something that you need on this Sunday and tomorrow on Monday and on Tuesday and every day from here on out to light your path before you go, right? To give you direction and guidance to help you navigate every area of your life. And so how do you get that light into your life? By believing him, trusting in him, relying on him, clinging to him, for eternal life, but also for direction and guidance in every area of your life. Jesus is the light of the world who came so that rather than dying in our sins, we might have the light of life. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. 
You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.